Today's scripture tells us about the turning point that happened in the life of a family who lived about a thousand years before Jesus. From Ruth chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem in Judah went to live in the country of Moab, he and his wife and two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the other was Ruth. When they had lived there for about ten years, both Malon and Chililon also died, so that the woman was left without her two sons or her husband. Then she started to return with her daughters-in-law from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the country of Moab that the Lord had considered for his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she had been living, she and her two daughters-in-law, and they went on their way to go back to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. May the Lord grant that you find security, each of you, in the house of your husband. Then she kissed them, and they wept aloud. They said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why would you go with me? Do I have still have sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. Even if I thought there was hope for me... Even if I should have a husband tonight and bear sons, would you then wait until they are grown? Would you then refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, it has been far more bitter for me than for you, because the hand of the Lord has turned against me. Then they wept aloud again. Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. So she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not press me to leave you or turn back from following you. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me more, even if death parts me from you. When Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more to her. So the two of them went down until they came to Bethlehem. A few weeks ago, we had a visitor in church with the same last name as me, Alan Aidy. He said he was from Houston, but he grew up in Waxahachie, Texas, which is where my great-grandparents, the 80s, were from. It was where my dad was born, where all my uncles lived. After church, Alan, 80, and I stood back there in the narthex, and we talked about the different 80s we knew, the homes that we had been in, the people we had visited with, the horses that we had ridden. And finally, one of us said to the other, well, are we cousins? And of course, we must be related somehow, but we weren't quite sure how. 
What we do know for sure is that the 80 family did not originate in Waxahachie, Texas. They first lived in Alabama and then moved from Alabama to Waxahachie, but of course, they didn't begin in Alabama. They came from England. And of course, they didn't just immigrate from England. First, they lived in Ireland, and they left Ireland because of the potato famine and only settled in England for a while before coming to Alabama and then Waxahachie. So we, what we knew is that Alan 80 and Carla 80, whether they're cousins or not, we are immigrants. We are refugees. We fled the famine so many turning points in life and in history that led Carla and Alan 80, who had never met each other, to worship the same day in September in Kansas City at Country Club Christian Church. My husband's last name is different. It's Amon. He grew up with parents who even spoke German in their household. They are 100% German, although they actually immigrated to North America from this area that we now hear about a lot in the news around the Black Sea. They lived in Odessa in what is present-day Ukraine. My husband's grandfather, Fred Amon, was about to be drafted into the war that was brewing in 1914 when he decided instead of being drafted, he would become an indentured servant. He became a nanny for a family with a young boy, and that family immigrated to North America, and he came along with them as a teenage boy to help care for their young son. He would get up with the son in the middle of the night. He would tutor the son and teach the son to read in the day. And this seemed like a better life for him to settle in Canada with this German family fleeing to safety instead of going into the war in what was then Odessa. One day, a traveling evangelist came through Canada where Fred Amon was going to church. And afterwards, he visited with this traveling evangelist, and the traveling evangelist said, Amon, 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 hmm. I met another Amon in my travels, a woman. She's in North Dakota, and it was Fred Amon's mother, and he had no idea that she also had gotten out of Odessa and was in North America. And because of that one chance meeting, he then came to North Dakota, and at this point, four generations of Amons have farmed in North Dakota. You, too, have a story. Your family has a story. Every family has a story. And, and I bet if we had time, there were people here today who could tell about when your grandparents fled a war or a famine or pestilence. Or some of you would tell about how your family traveled in covered wagons across the western frontier. And others would tell me, I, I've heard you tell me about how your family fled the rural areas to come to the city to seek an education or a job opportunity. All of us could tell a story about the turning points in our own families. And today's story from the Bible is about a key turning point in the life of one family, the life of Ruth. First, a quick review of the family tree. In the little town of Bethlehem, 
there lives a young couple, Elimelech and Naomi, and they have two teenage boys, Malon and Chilion. The family of four loves their life in Bethlehem. They worship weekly at the temple. They recite the Ten Commandments. They keep kosher. But one day they realize that they are really struggling to make ends meet. Their town, Bethlehem, means house of bread, but they do not have enough bread on the table to feed these two teenage boys. The famine in Bethlehem has left the entire region struggling to survive, and so Elimelech and Naomi pack up the teenage boys, and they move to the country next door to the country of Moab, crossing the border into a region where the famine has not struck. In Moab, the people speak a different language. They practice a different religion, but at least there is bread on the table. The boys, Malon and Chilion, go to school. They sign up for sports. They fall in love with two local Moabite girls, Ruth and Orpah, not Oprah, Orpah. Same letters, different order. At the weddings of their sons with these Moabite girls, they integrate the customs of Judaism with the local customs of the Moabite people. And then tragedy strikes. First, Elimelech, the father, dies, and then the two sons die. And now here we have three women, Naomi, Orpah, and Ruth, with no bread on the table. In that day, it is hard for us to fathom, but the women had no life insurance, no property rights, no education, no way to put bread on the table. Naomi only can fathom one way to survive going forward, and that is for her to go back to Bethlehem where she has some cousins and some aunts and some uncles, and rumor has it the famine has abated. Naomi then embraces her two daughter-in-laws. She kisses them. She weeps salty tears upon their shoulders. She cries out with sadness and despair, so saddened that their lives are ruined. But then, out of a deep love, she counsels her daughter-in-laws. Go home. Go back to your mothers. Start over. Find new husbands. I can't take care of you. I can't have any more children. And Orpah does precisely what her mother-in-law instructs her to do. She obeys mom's wishes. She goes back to her mother's home. But Ruth, Ruth refuses. She clings to her mother-in-law. She abandons her own nation of Moab, her own religion, her own family. She packs up her suitcase for the journey back to Bethlehem, a place that Ruth has never even visited before. And this is the turning point that will change the course of history. More on that in a moment. But first, let's think about families. Families Sometimes we fracture. The theologian and author James K.A. Smith is approximately my age, and in his recent book, he vividly recalls the day that his mom and dad set him down in the brown-paneled basement on the blue-flowered couch next to the big shelf of eight-track tapes. And there they told James and his siblings that the marriage was over. James said he felt erased. 
The pain and anguish he experienced in his relationship with his father was enormous. When James grew up and married Deanne, they had four kids, and he tried so hard to become a good father. Describing what that journey was like, he said, by God's grace, Deanna and I have spent over 30 years invested in the time-bending maneuver called family, trying to turn back the curse of generations. I love that line, the time-bending maneuver called family. Being family is not always easy. Sometimes families fracture. They fracture along political fault lines. They fracture as a result sometimes of addictions or mental illness. They fracture over financial disputes, even small amounts of money. They fracture because someone says something that stings so badly that they can't mend the hurt. They can't seem to build a wall. There is a chasm a gulf that seems like it can't be bridged. In the time that the book of Ruth was written, there were edicts issued by religious leaders, two leaders named Ezra and Nehemiah. They also have books in the Bible. Their edicts state that the foreign wives and the foreign children who had married into the Jewish people should be cast out. Some say that Ruth's book challenges this notion because in the story of Ruth, we have a picture of a loyal and faithful love that comes precisely from the outsider. So why would we cast them out? Maybe that's part of the message. In order for Ruth's story to make complete sense, you really should go home this afternoon and read the rest of the book of Ruth. It's only four chapters, and honestly, some of it is a little R-rated, maybe worse. But if you're already busy this afternoon, let me just summarize. Ruth clings to her mother-in-law. She travels back to Bethlehem with her. She marries one of her mother-in-law's relatives, a Jewish man. And fast forward now about a thousand years, and when Jesus is born in that same little town of Bethlehem, Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, will tell us the story of Jesus' birth by beginning with the genealogy. Forty-two generations are listed. You remember Abraham begat, begat, blah, 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 and you skip over those pages, but we shouldn't. The genealogy lists 42 fathers, only the fathers, except three women are listed. One of them is Ruth. Ruth, you see, becomes not just the loyal family member who crosses the religious and cultural boundaries of her day. Ruth becomes the grandmother of kings. She becomes part of the family tree that brings to you and me and the whole world the Savior, the Messiah, Jesus. She is the one who did not let the family of faith fracture. She saved them. Her turning point of loyalty and love in that tragic, bitter moment of grief became part of how God saved the world. 
When you read Ruth, if you do this afternoon, you might wonder what scholars have often wondered, where is God in the family story? Maybe you wonder that about your own family story. Where is God in this family story? Because in the book of Ruth, God seems to not play a prominent role. God seems to kind of be there, but back hiding in the shadows. Very little action is attributed to God in this story. And maybe the message is that our own individual stories are simply part of that larger story of God's faith with humanity, God's focus on the whole human family, not God focusing on one religion or one family or one nation, but on the entirety of the human race. So maybe we need not draw such rigid boundaries between the Moabites and the Israelites or between the Americans and the Iraqis. Or maybe Maybe the message is more particular to the moments that each of us individually will face when conflict and bitterness and heartache show up on the doorsteps of our own personal families. Just as Ruth clings to Naomi in that bitter, painful moment, God clings to us. God's love is revealed in our stories. God does not leave us when the going gets tough. Ruth, you see, she reveals something of the character of God. God is the one who clings to us. Someone has said that we all come to know God because of someone. Someone forgives us. Someone loves us. Someone kisses us. Someone is vulnerable with us, weeping tears upon our shoulders. Someone clings to us. And through all of that, we taste the goodness of a God who will never, ever, 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 ever let go of us. My husband Dave and I had a destination wedding back before destination weddings were trendy. Part of the reason we ran off to Telluride, Colorado with 35 or 40 friends and family for our wedding was because my mom and dad were vehemently disapproving of our marriage. My fiance was older than me, significantly. He was divorced. And he was a single dad. None of those three things fit my parents' criteria for a storybook life for their daughter. The six months leading up to our wedding were some of the most painful days of my life and some of the most joyful days. Only a couple of weeks before the wedding, mom and dad let me know that they would be showing up at the wedding but even on the morning of the wedding, as we gathered for breakfast in the ski lodge, you could cut the tension between my parents and I in that room. You could cut it with a knife. My mom and dad had not paid for one penny of the wedding, not the wedding dress, not the invitations, not the flowers, not the music, none of it. About 15 minutes before I walked down the aisle, my dad came back to the back of the church where I was getting ready, and he took my 
face into his hands and he looked me in the eye and he said, your mom and I love you very much. And we have already spoken to the woman at the reception hall and told her to give us the bill for tonight's celebration. I walked down the aisle with mascara all over my face, but it was okay because I knew that if family love clings, God's love clings. Sometimes in the middle of a family mess, a fractured heart opens up and the pain and the confusion hold court for way too long of a time. But when we look back over the arc of history, we see God's grace clinging to this fragile human family of ours in my case, I don't know about you, but in my case, when I am in the middle of it, I am never quite sure exactly where God is. But today, I can look back and see that if not for a famine in the Aedy clan and a war in the Ammon clan, I might not have ever met my husband here in Kansas City and experienced firsthand the love of God that never lets us go.